Hi, I'm Kristen, and you're listening to A Public Church Podcast. We'd love to connect with you through our social media at A Public Church or through our website, publicchurch.com. Thanks for listening. Man, public students, I know you guys have been welcome, but I, I think that song really just is perfect to end your weekend. Because I know last night, Nolan Rumble was the speaker. He said, hey, if, if Jesus is your leader, then where is he not leading? And that's a song just to say, man, Jesus, it's your name I'm living for to help you guys continue to evaluate, well, where am I not living for your name? So I love you guys. Thank you for being with us. And I love when Jesus just brings all of these things together. And I don't know about you guys, but that's a song I needed after the week that I've had. Anybody had a little bit of a week this morning? And just to be able to come in and sing that truth is really good. I know for me, I think for several of us, particularly because of some things that I've been processing this week. So I want to let you in on that. And it really, it starts with a date. The date is August 23rd, 1978. And the second date is January 26, 2020. And that's the birth date. And then the date that Kobe Bryant was tragically taken from all of us. You know, the thing is, this really has affected me. And so I've been asking the question, like, why? Why, why has this affected me so much? You know, last Sunday, I was laying down for a nap, and I first saw the news on Twitter, and it was almost like I got consumed. I even, like, cried at one point, and I'm like, man, what, what, what's going on? And it's only affected me. This seems to have gripped the nation. And so as I'm, I'm asking why, like, what, what, what's really going on here? Why is this passing of this guy so just touching and gripping and moving, and, and why is it everywhere for us? So I began to process that for me. I I just want to let you guys know if we haven't met, I know I haven't met all of you guys, my name's Todd, but here's one thing that you probably already knew about me before you knew my name, which is I've never met Kobe Bryant. Like crying for this guy, I didn't even root for him, just to be honest. I rooted against him. Now, granted, in his last season, because I'm a sports nerd, I read an article on ESPN, and it was about the incredible process that he had to go through every day just to get his body ready to play at an NBA level. And so talk physical therapy, stretching like hours of this just to get ready to perform. And I was like, I respect that. I began to understand a little bit of the mama mentality. And then in his final night as an NBA player, when he dropped 60 and then did the Mamba out mic drop, I was like, yes, that's how a legend should go out. But why? Why has this affected me so much? I think maybe part of the reason is that he stayed on top of the world of his game even after his retirement. I mean, he won an Academy Award. Not only that, he started this incredible league called the Mamba League, where he was giving young ladies and young men an opportunities that, that they just couldn't have and teaching them the fundamentals of basketball. And then by all accounts and, and by everything that we can see, it looked like he was able to take that extra time he had and really just dive into his family and invest in them. And I know the hashtag girl dad has been going around and some of you guys have posted that because he just seemed like a great dad. He seemed like he was just on top of everything. 41 years young, and last Sunday, he's gone. His wife is a widow and also mourning the loss of a daughter. His daughters not only are grieving their dad, but also a sister they lost just in an instant. And then 29 years young, that's the age of Ethan Beard as he passed away this week. The church that sent Whitney and I out to be a part of this is North Cleveland Baptist Church, and we were there. Ethan was part of our church family. We were all there together. And Ethan, in his 20s, suffered from cancer, like his 20s, people. And then this week, at 29 years young, gone. 
So why has this bothered me? Why has this affected me so much? I think the word that I've come to just settle on is it's just jarring. You don't expect a dad who's 41 and at the top of the world to just be gone. You don't expect a dad who's 29 and has a young son and all of a sudden that son's left behind, his wife's left behind. You don't expect him to just be gone. So on a global and local level this week, I've been reminded of the brevity of life. As I thought about it, I came back to something that James said. James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem where the church was born. We were in his letter last week, and in chapter four of his letter, James writes this, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And the truth of James' observation resonates deep within all of us on weeks like this as we come face to face with the fact that life is short. It truly is like a mist and it's here and then it's gone. So as I was processing this, I really believe the Holy Spirit reminded me of a question that I heard on Andy Stanley's leadership podcast. He was interviewing Chris McChesney who wrote The Four Disciplines of Execution. And the question they were asking is this, what is one thing that could change everything? Now, obviously they're thinking organization and leadership, but what is one thing that could change everything? So this week I began to wrestle with this question in my own life, knowing that life is short. And the reality is for a lot of us, we can kind of push away thoughts of death and eternity. Now, the older we get, the harder it is to do that because we have this idea that we may be getting closer to death. But this week we realized a 29-year-old, a 41-year-old, we're experienced death. So we don't know how close or how far away we are. I just began to like process this. What is one thing that could change everything? Because the reality is this, we all know we're gonna die and we all want an answer for what happens after we die. Whether we follow Jesus or not, no matter where we fall in the belief, when we just face it, we all know we're gonna die and we would all like some kind of meaningful answer of what happens when we die. And it's so easy for us just to push eternity and push death and push these thoughts out of our mind and get distracted and just go on with our lives. But I just want to invite us this morning to face it, to face the brevity of our lives, to face the fact that we're all going to face death and we all need an answer for what happens after death. But let's not face it in a way that we get fearful and paralyzed and can't do anything. Let's face it with our question. What is one thing that could change everything? Because if we could discover that one thing, then we could live lives that matter while we're here on earth. We could live lives that set us up well for life after earth. So I think this is a question worth our time. And to wrestle with it, we're gonna to go to a letter written by Paul. Paul was a phenomenal leader in the early church and he writes a letter to a church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city that had a lot in common with us. It was marked by materialism and excess. In other words, in Corinth, there were plenty of opportunities to numb the pain of death. There are plenty of opportunities to distract ourselves from thinking about eternity. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Also in Corinth, you could go hear a philosopher just talk about life and, and give you some answers, but listening to them was a form of entertainment that required no life change. And sometimes that's what we want in these moments. We want to hear somebody talk about it and kind of give us some answers as a form of entertainment to kind of make us have some warm fuzzies, but we want to make sure that whatever we're listening to requires no life change. And so here's what Paul's going to do. 
He's gonna inject feeling where we're numb. He's gonna cut through the distractions and he's gonna enter into this question, what is one thing that could change everything? And he enters into this discussion in the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as he writes this. He said, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. I don't know about you, but if I'm in Paul's original audience and I hear him and I'm listening to this being read and I'm sitting here just kind of distracted by my scroll, not scrolling, but a scroll, we didn't have phones. So if you get that later, I'll work on my dad jokes over the course of the week. Anyway, so I'm kind of distracted and then all of a sudden Paul goes, hey, let me show you a way of life. This is best of all. Suddenly I'm sitting up straight. I'm moving to the front of my seat and I'm like, hey, is there one thing that could change everything? Is Paul about to tell us about it? Like, I'm, I'm engaged, and here's what Paul says next. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's what he says. <laughs> he, he says, look, our words without love sound like a terrible instrument. Here's the image I want to get in your mind. Think about sixth grade band tryouts. The terrible noises that come from sixth grade band tryouts. That's the image that helps us understand what Paul is saying. He goes on to say, if I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Here's what Paul says, without love, despite immense talents, I bring nothing valuable to the table. Then he says this in verse three. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. That we can volunteer for nonprofits. We can be a voice to the voiceless. We can leverage our generosity to help those who are suffering under immense weight of material poverty. But if we don't have love, then none of those actions really mean anything. The message paraphrase says it like this in verse three. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Let's jump down to verse eight. We'll come back to verses four through seven. But Paul continues his argument in verse eight. He says, prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Notice the contrast. Useless versus last forever. He said, hey, some of these things that mean a lot now, one day they're gonna be useless, but love will last. He goes on to say, now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. Here's what he's saying. We need things like prophecy and knowledge. We need some of these gifts now. But at one point, everything's going to be fulfilled, everything's going to be complete, and they will have fulfilled their purpose. But love endures. Love is eternal. Love lasts. Then he writes this in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now, audience participation What is the topic of chapter 13 so far? Love. Then why, when I hear people talk about this verse, do they say nothing about love? 
Sometimes we treat this verse as if Paul just had an ADHD moment and he's like writing love, love, love. Oh, forget everything I've written. I'm gonna come over here and write something different. No, this is intertwined. This is connected. We have to interpret this verse through the context of the chapter, which is about love. So here's what Paul is saying. The degree to which we are loving is the degree to which we are maturing. He wants us to understand the degree to which we are loving is the degree to which we are maturing. Love is not a baby thing. It's not a toddler thing. It's not a little kid thing. Love is a grown-up highest level of maturity thing. And then he writes verse 12, and the only way to fully understand it is in the context of the chapters about love, 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 and it's awesome in that context. Here's what he says. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. Now, if you have your own Bible or your Bible app, the phrase perfect clarity may read something like face-to-face. Well, that's an idiom in the original language that simply means clarity. So here's what Paul's saying. During this lifetime, our time here on earth, we're always gonna lack some clarity. We're never gonna have full knowledge, but he says there will come a day when we have perfect clarity, complete knowledge, and on that day, verse 13, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And then here's where we can do ourselves a disservice by the chapter and verse divides in our Bible because we can just stop here. But chapter 13 is actually part of a larger argument that Paul is making from chapters 12 through 14. It's not isolated. So we need to read his transition into the final part of his argument to fully complete what he's saying. Chapter 14, verse 1, let love be your highest goal. What is one thing that could change everything? Here's what Paul would say. Love is the one thing that will change everything. He is so clear. Yes, so many of us right now are skeptical. We're pushing back for some reason. Some of you are going, okay, I follow Jesus, and I, I, you're like literally reading from God's word. I get that, but there's just something uneasy here. This doesn't make sense. I just, uh, not, I'm just not comfortable with like love, the highest goal. Love is the one thing that will change everything. I just, I'm pushing back because all of us have seen things done in the name of love that didn't have anything to do with what the name of Jesus represents. So we kind of push back. For others of us, we're going, this is so soft and mushy. Like, this doesn't match the grittiness of my life. This doesn't match the adversity, the tragedy that I'm walking through right now. It's just soft and mushy. Others of you are like, it's so simple, juvenile, elementary, just love and everything will be all right. Like that, How does that hold up in the real world? So where did Paul get this? Jesus. Paul didn't make this up. He got it from Jesus. So to confirm that love is the one thing that will change everything, we need to drop into a scene the night before Jesus died. Here's the beautiful part about dropping into this scene is that we get the account of that scene from someone who is in the room. Like John, who writes this in John chapter 13, he is there. He's not saying, I heard this. He was literally there hearing these words from Jesus. And in John chapter 13, verse 33 is where we will pick up. And Jesus says, dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. 
And as I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come where I am going. Now, to help us understand what Jesus is saying, it's kind of like those of you who are parents of high schoolers and you've left them at home by themselves for an extended period of time, or those of us who will do that one day, probably a questionable decision, unless our like, high schooler is like, really awesome. But, but when you're leaving your, your child, your high schooler at home, very likely you have a list of things to do, probably some things not to do. And you're like, hey, I'm gonna be gone, so could you like feed the dog? Who cares about the cat? Um, don't have people over... <laughs> kind of kidding, but I, I house sat one time, and the husband gave me instructions, a page and a half about the dog, like all this stuff, didn't even put the cat's name. It was the wife's cat, but I'm like, the whole week, I'm like, hey, nameless cat, are you okay? I'm mean, I fed him, and I think it was him, I don't even know if he said, but anyway, but as a parent, you're going to leave this list of like, hey, do these things, don't do these things. This is what Jesus is saying. He's like, hey, guys, I'm out. I'm leaving, so, so here's my list, verse 34, so now, I'm giving you a new command, love each other. Parents, Jesus' list is a lot shorter than yours is. Jesus says, I'm leaving you a list. Here's what to do while I'm gone. One thing, love each other. Love is the one thing that will change everything. It's from Jesus' mouth. We still are uncomfortable for some reason. We're still kind of pushing back. It just lacks clarity. Because in our culture, probably the dominant definition of love is just tolerance. And again, there's so many things done in the name of love that don't align with the name of Jesus and what he stands for. And we're just like, ah, can we have some more clarity? I'm just not comfortable when Jesus says, could you just keep reading? I don't stop there. So now I'm giving you a new command, love each other. And then he says this, just as I have loved you, you should love each other other. One of the things that I think is so phenomenal about Jesus is that Jesus never gives us the liberty to come up with our own definition of love because he is the definition. Jesus never says, hey, you take the freedom to form your own definition of love. He can't do that because he is the definition. In other words, Jesus is love defined. There's clarity here. So what this meant for the disciples in the room is that they were with love personified. They were staring at the definition of love. So in order for them to begin to understand and comprehend what love is, they had to go, okay, how has Jesus loved me? And some things I think they would have concluded. He chose me. He empowered me. <laughs> he gave me purpose. He coached me. He listened to me, he forgave me, and ultimately, he changed me. That's how Jesus has loved me. But then, not only should they look back at their whole lives, but they should look back at what just happened early in the chapter. And they could go, how did Jesus just like 10 minutes ago love me? And here's what he did. He debased himself by taking on the form of a slave and washing their dirty, nasty, smelly feet. And he washed all of them. Key word being all, because one of them was Judas who was about to betray Jesus, setting off a string of events that would ultimately lead to his execution, Jesus' execution. So Jesus didn't say, Judas, boop, you're out. All right, now I'm gonna wash your feet. You know, he's the, the one. You know, no, he washed everybody's feet. What kind of love is that? 
that you would debase yourself, that you would lower yourself way below your status, even for one who would betray. And then as John writes this, and as you reminisce, and as the disciples were to look back on this night, they weren't just thinking, okay, here's how Jesus had loved me, but here's how he did love me from this moment forward. Here's what they realized, that he died for me. He rose for them. Because all of them had abandoned him, he still pursued them and restored them. And then again, he empowered and equipped them. Look, this isn't a soft, mushy kind of love. This is a gritty, wash dirty feet and die for traitors kind of love. Jesus is love defined. So when we ask ourselves, what is love? We must look at Jesus. In fact, in John 13, 15, right after he washed their feet, Jesus said this powerful statement. He said, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Example to follow. That means pattern. And Jesus was talking about what he just did and what he'd done throughout their whole time with him. He said, look, I am the pattern. I am love personified. I am love defined. So we want to know what is love in a situation. We must look at Jesus because love looks like Jesus. Here's the tension. We can't know love unless we know Jesus. We will never be able to comprehend the definition of love unless we know the one who is the definition. In the very first talk of this year, I challenged us to consider reading a gospel, one of the four accounts of Jesus's life to start the year. Whitney and I are reading through John. I know Cody, our worship pastor, is reading through Mark. Nathan, our campus pastor, he's reading through a gospel. And I hope that some of you guys are doing that as well. Why is that such a pivotal challenge? Because we've got to know Jesus in order to know how to love. Without knowing him, we will never know love. So Jesus is love defined. But wouldn't it be helpful if we didn't just have a definition, but we had some words to articulate what love is, some descriptors, so that we could know in our lives, okay, here's what love looks like in Jesus' life, here's the definition, but here's how I can put language to it, because common language builds a common culture, so if we have a common language of here's what love is, then what we can do is we can build a common culture around loving like Jesus, And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, he writes this. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. Love, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Now we have love described. Jesus defined love, Paul described it. This is love described. What this means is as we look to Jesus's life to go, here's the definition. And then we think, okay, how do I evaluate myself by some descriptors? Woo! When I'm patient, I'm loving like Jesus. When I'm impatient, I'm not loving like Jesus. And the problem is, when we dig into this word patient, it actually most of the time indicates patience with people. 
which admittedly is way harder than patience with situations because the root of every situation that it's making us stumble is people. Like we have people problems. If we get rid of people, we'd have a great life. Some of you guys are way too excited about that. And Paul cuts straight to the heart of it and says, be patient with people. That's how you love like Jesus. Love keeps no record of being wronged. So when we're in a meeting with our boss and we're reaching back in the past, when we're a child talking to our parent and we're reaching back in the past, when we're a parent talking to our child and talking to our spouse or talking to our roommate or talking to our friend, and anytime we're reaching back in the past for a way we've been wronged, we are not loving like Jesus. Because love keeps no record of being wronged. When it comes to love, Jesus is love defined. Paul gave us love described. So, so what is our role? Our role is found in John 13, 35. After Jesus said, hey, here's the one thing, love each other. He writes this, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In other words, what's our role? Love displayed. Our role is that we are love displayed. Jesus defined it. Paul described it. We display it. Now, again, there's a little catch here. Here's the catch. We cannot display a love that we've never received. But what happens is when we receive it, love received becomes love displayed. So what we have to do as we're thinking about love displays, thinking about, okay, how do I live this out? We have to internalize how Jesus has loved us. So we're not just thinking about what the disciples thought. No, now all of a sudden we're going, how has Jesus loved me? He chose me. He empowers me. He gives me purpose. He coaches me. He listens to me. He forgives me. And over and over and over again, he gives me another chance. And then you know what has to happen next? The cross has got to get personal. The cross can't be some event that happened 2,000 years ago. But no, we got to realize Jesus died for me. Jesus rose from the dead for me. Then, despite all the times that I have abandoned and will continue to abandon him, Jesus restores me. And then over and over and over, Jesus equips and empowers me. Not a mushy love, not a soft love. This is a love that conquers death. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. So here's what that means. If we're thinking, man, what is the one thing that will change everything? What's love? Here's what's incredible about love. Jesus' love is the one thing that did change everything. We're not talking in theory. We're looking at our own lives and at the cross, and we're going, the cross changed everything forever. And I'm just wondering, is anybody here at the 12 that could praise Jesus and say, man, he's changed me. He is changing me. Can we praise Jesus for a moment? And look, if you don't follow Jesus, we're not doing that to try to coerce you into clapping. But we want you to understand this, <laughs> that tonight, when Patrick Mahomes throws a touchdown pass, I'm gonna get a little bit excited. And the Chiefs aren't even my team, but I'm pulling for them. So look, if Jesus has loved us to the point of dying for us, rose from the dead for us so that he can conquer death or any obstacle in our lives, can we not get a little fired up about Jesus changing us, about the process that we're in as he continues to change us?
We should be able to have some emotion tied to that. Love displayed. That's our role. And that's how this ties into our series. Our series is called Prove It. (laughs) Jesus said, your love for one another will prove, prove to the world that you are my disciples. So to tie in for the whole series so far, part one, we need heart surgery. Jesus gives us a new heart. We've received his love and that new heart is programmed to now display his love. Part two, we talked about last week that faith and action are intertwined and inseparable. Well, here's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter five, verse six. He said this, there's one thing, faith, faith and action, expressing that's action. There's one thing that matters, faith expressing itself through love. Love is what proves it. Jesus is love defined. Paul gives us love described. We, we are love displayed. But there's a trap that we can fall into very easily. It's a trap that Peter and the other disciples fell into. If we look at John chapter 13, verse 36, after Jesus says, hey, your love for one another will prove the world that you are my disciples, Peter says, Simon Peter asks, Lord, where are you now going? If this seems a little disjointed, it is. Just keep reading. And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I'll tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. This is crazy. Jesus just said, hey, while I'm gone, here's the list. It's one thing, love each other as I have loved you. This is vital. And Peter's kind of like a kid. His parent gives him the list. Like, hey, do all these things. You go, now, what's the exact time you're going to be home? Like, like to the minute. Because I've got some things, I need, like, literally, I need to know the minute. Can I, ha- like, find my friend and you be my friend now? Not, not you look at me, but I want to look at you, mom, and I want to know the moment that garage door opens. So they totally missed the whole point. And we can crack on Peter, but we do the same thing. We do a bunch of things, fail to prioritize the one thing, and wonder why there's no life change. Isn't that us? We do a bunch of things, fail to prioritize the one thing, and wonder why is there no life change? Because we're just like Peter. Jesus has given us his marching orders. He said, look, this is what matters most, love like Jesus, and we're like, "Ah, that's really simple. But it's so hard. So we're just going to do other things. I'll be at the 12 o'clock gathering. I'll be in my community group. But I'm not going to let Jesus love me in such a way that I've got to show up at the office tomorrow and be kind to those people, be kind to the people I live with. I don't care how Paul described love. No, I'm just going to be at the 12. I'm just going to be in my community group, which Paul says without love is meaningless. Good. Without love, meaningless. Ah, love like Jesus? That means that I've got to walk into environments where I don't like anybody, environments that I don't want to be in, and I've got to be hopeful? Love is always hopeful? Like, I don't like these people. I don't see any potential in these people. I'm better than these people. These are the things we think, isn't it? And I've got to walk in and have some kind of hope, maybe not in them, but the God who created them, and they're in his image, so that means i got to love. No! I don't want to be hopeful. I just want to serve on my team. And just keep that in a little box. Love, (laughs) 
Love is not irritable. That means that when they press, I can't even say it. When they come after me, I'm irritable. Jesus is going to affect how I respond to people. I don't, I don't know if I can get on that. Not jealous. That means I can't want what other people have. I can't go on Instagram and start getting angry at people because they've got more opportunities than I have because they have more followers than me. I can't see that somebody has more influence or more affluence than me and go, oh, I wish I was them because that's not loving like Jesus. I just want to do a little post about Jesus' love and walk away. It's so simple, so demanding, and it's easy for us to do a bunch of things, fail to prioritize the one thing, and wonder why there's no life change. When it comes to love, Jesus defined it. Paul describes it, love, and we display it. Will we? Here's the challenge for us. If you guys could grab the card that's in the seat as you came in, if everybody, audience participation, everybody could just hold it up right here. Okay, th- this card is, is really important for us as a church because what this card does is it has on it our phrase for the year, love defined, love described, love displayed, and it has our scripture for the whole year. So don't lose this. Come back next week. It's gonna be awesome. We're gonna dig more into this. But before we can think whole year, we have to start small. So here's the challenge. For the next seven days, like literally every day between now and leading up to next Sunday, would we take this card, sit down, and would we answer these three questions? They're going to be on the screen. So take a picture of these. Would we sit down and go, okay, love defined. How has Jesus loved me? Would we read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and say, okay, Jesus is patient when he and would. We sit down and reflect, love displayed. So today... Not not in a month, not in a year. Today, I will prove it when I. So in just a moment, I'm gonna give us a chance to take a couple minutes and literally start this. Before we do, there's, there's one final angle that we've got to address, and it's this. Why? Like, like, why does this matter? Why is it such a big deal? Remember verse 35? Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world, that you are my disciples. Not prove to the Jesus followers within public church, not prove to the Jesus followers within the global church, prove to those who think hope died. Prove to those in our lives who have no hope and and they're just at the end and they think there is no, there's no light in their darkness and they're just like, man, there's nothing else for me. Hope for those who think they have it great. And they have no idea that they're heading for some punishment and bad ramifications in eternity. They have no idea what they're setting themselves up for in the life after earth. Look, you know how we reach them? You know how we invite them to follow Jesus? You know how we help them see that Jesus changes everything and he wants to change them? We love like Jesus. That's how we prove to them that we are with Jesus so we can then point them to Jesus. Why does this matter? Because here's the stakes. There are people in all of our lives who are headed on a trajectory towards hell. Life after earth, eternity for them, will be filled with suffering the consequences of their sin. Consequences that we all deserve with not even a flicker of hope for all of eternity. 
And yet Jesus died for them, rose again, and here's what he offers them, an eternity of forgiveness, an eternity of restoration, an eternity of being with him. But we're not gonna, they're not gonna see the offer of Jesus unless we first love them like Jesus and love each other like Jesus. We must become love displayed. Eternity hangs in the balance. So take a moment. Those questions are gonna be on the screen. I've got my journal up here. If you've got your phone, maybe you can open your notes or Evernote and just take a couple minutes. Let's begin to answer these questions. Public worship is gonna lead us in a couple songs. Just encourage you, hey, keep reflecting on that. Just when you're ready, stand and sing. Again, the, the challenge is, let's do this for the next seven days. We've gotta let Jesus's words get in us and begin to change us from the inside out before we can go forward. So let's prioritize this time. And if as you're going through these, if you realize, I've never received Jesus' love. I, I'm not a Jesus follower. And our prayer team will be in the back. They would love to talk with you about that. Or maybe you just need prayer. Go to the back and talk with them. But let's be people that love like Jesus. Let's allow him to change us so that we can be love displayed. Jesus, I just thank you for who you are and for the way that you've loved us. I pray that we would literally feel and experience your love that we would receive it so that then we can display it. Speak to us in these moments.